You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. So every year around the start of February, Irish sports fans have a decision to make about whether or not to stay up for the Super Bowl. If you're just awake right now and you didn't watch the Super Bowl last night, well, congratulations. You've made the best sporting decision this weekend. <laughs> a very good morning to you. You're welcome along to Monday's OTB AM. Uh, it's myself and Anthony Moyles in studio this morning, who I suspected was actually going to stay up and watch the Super Bowl. So I set up to watch the Super Bowl to enjoy a conversation <laughs> with you. And then you bottled it and went to bed. <laughs> I'm sorry, Owen. I really should have. I, I could have spooked you this morning and said, yeah, yeah, I did. I probably looked like I stayed up, to be honest. Your makeup people weren't, weren't the best this morning. No, it's, uh, I just, I was actually there ready to go. I watched all the preamble, watched it all week. I was looking forward to it. And then I just said, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm going to hit the hay. Uh, and yes. I woke up this morning, checked the phone, and I was like, not a bad decision. Yeah, an excellent decision. Yeah. You missed what I think is probably the worst Super Bowl, in, certainly in my lifetime. I'm sure if there's anybody out there who's been watching Super Bowl for decades, uh, get in touch uh, at Off the Ball to let us know if there has been a worst Super Bowl that you can remember. It was one for the purists. So I presume the people who watch it like intently every single week and have NFL Game Pass and who are looking intently at how defense is uh, set up and all this sort of thing would have loved a 13-3 finale <laughs> yeah. an NFL season. But I, I just couldn't get into it at all it was it, it was kind of like a grotesque ending to perhaps something that the NFL deserved because you know you, you look at some of the, the things some of the issues that face the NFL at the moment yeah, like yeah. And some of the things that we, we speak about quite often on the show about performance enhancing drugs and of course the MVP last night Julian Edelman uh, on the back of a four week PED suspension at the start of this year so maybe the NFL got exactly the Super Bowl it deserved yeah yeah I, I, I kind of I had an inkling to be honest with you before because I knew Belichick obviously was going to have to do something completely different Different. And he takes all, everyone knows, he goes to take your weapons away. And the weapons of the Rams was obviously their offense, you know. Mm-hmm. So he, his, his, his whole focus was going to be on that because he obviously knew that they've quite a good defense too. So it was going to be difficult for them to get points. So it wasn't going to be, I don't think, probably a lot of fellas had, had a look at the over-under on the, on the actual amount of points. And at 16 points, that's, that's pretty unbelievable. Like to say, you know, when the Rams maybe five or six games ago were really shooting the lights, I'd just say they'd only get a, a field goal in, yeah. in, in, in the Super Bowl. That's pretty unbelievable. Um, but it, yeah, so it's, it's another win for him. Like unbelievable. Another win for Brady. Like it is phenomenal. And to think, like, I mean, I watched them during the year when they played the, the, the Detroit Lions and they were absolutely terrible. Like, I mean, you were kind of saying that's the end of that team. Yeah. Finished. You know, they will not get back. Um, and now to look at what they've done they are an unbelievable team love them or hate or load them um, they're a team that learns as they go through and they just they learn and like I mean he's he, he obviously is an unbelievable coach and an unbelievable coaching staff because as I say he comes up against these teams and he just takes their weapons away all the time yeah. pretty, pretty unbelievable it was actually to be fair it was really fascinating at times watching their thought process last night so yeah. first throw of the game Brady throws an interception uh, so you're straight away thinking how's he going to respond from this he calls two timeouts in the first quarter because because he can't figure out the defensive reads on the LA Rams. And then later on, like you just pick up a couple of plays, just listening closely to, to Tom Brady. One of their plays is called Reagan on attack, which I, I think is probably the most unsurprising name of a Bill Belichick yeah, uh, yeah. play ever. And uh, there's just little tidbits as the evening goes 
goes on with yeah. the illustrations painted from Tony Romo about how people counteract Bill Belichick and stuff. So there was a really cool picture painted of how Belichick and Brady figure out a really tight game like this. So that was the intrigue, and we will talk to Mike Carlson a little bit later on to get a bit more detail on that. Yeah. Uh, let's tell you what is coming up uh, on today's OTBAM. So we're going to get into the Six Nations uh, in about 10 minutes' time. There was a game on Saturday which is going to become uh, the feature of today's show, I do suspect. Ireland's hammered at home uh, by England. A very, very poor performance from Joe Schmidt's side uh, and well below everybody's expectations, I think it's fair to say, on Saturday afternoon. Then we're going to get into our GA roundup with Moylesy here at around 25 past 8 this morning. The sports news with the PR wing of Dublin GEA, Darren Cleary, at 25 to 9. Uh, Dublin back to winning ways at the weekend. And then, as I say, at quarter to nine, we're crossing over to Atlanta because Mike Carlson is on the line. He's stayed up for us especially. He's been our NFL resident uh, expert, I guess, over the last few weeks and months. And he is going to give us one last dose of NFL insight at around quarter to nine this morning. We will get into the back pages now, though. And uh, we shall start with uh, the Irish Independent. Knockout blow, asks the back page of the Indo. World Cup may have come a year too late for Ireland, as England's bullies expose reality facing Schmidt's men. Plenty of coverage uh, in the Irish Independent and across all the back pages this morning. Uh, and that is the picture there of Tom Curry colliding with CJ Stander. And if it wasn't bad enough, or perhaps it is a blessing in disguise, you know, the result that people have spoken about, is it a further blessing in disguise or a further blow that suddenly Ireland has to figure out a way of perhaps... Uh, getting some sort of sliver of life out of this thing without the likes of CJ Standard. Yeah, I think it, you know it, it's forcing Schmidt's hand. I think to, to 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 obviously delve into the panel a bit more and the squad of players. Um, I'm surprised he didn't actually do that pre this game. I think if it was if it was set up differently, the the, the 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 you know if it was maybe you know Scotland first or Italy first, I think he would have probably experimented a bit more. Because it was England, I'd say he just would have loved just to sneak a win or maybe a loss, but only a very very small loss. Um, I think the manner of the defeat and probably. The fact that it could have been more probably would give him a, ser- a situation where he's like, mm, that's not one brilliantly, it's not great, it's not by any matter of means great. I can imagine that camp this morning is kind of looking around. You know, we were just talking off air, and as you said, when the Schmidt team goes behind, it's a horrible thing to it's look tough at. To watch. Yeah, it's tough to watch because it is very kind of one-dimensional and you're kind of going, there isn't really any kind of semblance of that they're really going to break into this. You know, it's, it's really that they're just kind of hanging on. Um, and England were set up so well, defensively set up so well. It was just Ireland just pounding against a brick wall. Well, that's the thing. I mean, John Mitchell said last week that Ireland might board them into submission Maybe there was an element of truth in that. Maybe maybe they exposed yeah. that there is. And, and to be honest with you, maybe when we're winning, that truth exists as well. That it's like we do uh, a certain amount of things extremely well. And yeah. it, the, the, one of the cliches that's been thrown around is that you know what you're going to get from Ireland, but you're powerless to stop it. But yes. it seems that Eddie yeah. Jones was the exact opposite of powerless to actually stop what happened. And you know we'll get Alan Quinn's yeah. take later on as to... <sighs> perhaps when you just put that England team with all their available weapons or most of their available weapons on the pitch and playing well are they just better than Ireland and have we got them off, off form over the last two years I don't know we'll, we'll, see, we'll see if we're overreacting certainly my outlook is quite negative on things this morning uh, the front page of the Irish Times Sports Monday is scars for wounded Ireland likely to be physical as well as mental he is alluding to things like uh, CJ Standard's injury he's going to miss a substantial amount of the Six Nations it would be very surprising if he came back for Scotland this, this week um, and Devon Toner, of course, is another one. That is 
potentially the most significant injury if he's missing because we've already got big issues in the second row. Mm. You've got Gavin Comiskey saying England's runaway chariot proves that size still matters. Uh, and Aguero puts the pressure back on Liverpool. A hat-trick from Sergio Aguero yesterday against Arsenal. Uh, West Ham against Liverpool tonight for Liverpool hoping to reopen that four-point gap at the top of the Premier League. Uh, five-point gap. Uh, the back page of the Times Ireland edition is Say It Ain't Sojo with his widely hailed plan and tatters. Schmidt faces battle to get career-defining World Cup campaign back on track. Uh, and then the Irish Examiner this morning leads with uh, the GEA because the Parky Cueve pitch <laughs> yesterday. Oh my God. Grounds for concern, it says here. Pitch problems, defeat on the double. Cork's winter of discontent extends into spring. Have you ever seen anything like that? No. Like, I mean, you know, their, their five-year plan, probably a six-month plan, <laughs> is to get the pitch correct. Uh, again, you know, kind of, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago about the overspend and everything else that goes on. Like, I mean, that is just, supposedly it was absolutely just diabolical. Anthony Daly was saying that, you know, someone, when the Calair lads went to bounce the ball, it just literally just was, like, I mean, completely soggy, just never even came up. Um, for a pitch newly laid, all that stuff, you really don't expect it to be like that. Uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just another situation down there that just kind of adds more and more pressure on to a county that's obviously, uh, you know, really trying to find its feet again. And mm. two losses as well, not great. Like, Calera ended up with 13 men. Um, you know, so not, it's not in good shape for Cork. They really can't go down to Division 3. No. That would be quite worrying. Be an absolute disaster. At least the hurlers are protected from relegation. Which yes, is, uh, yeah, the one yeah. silver lining. Uh, let's have a look at the Irish news this morning. They go with another level. Mayo Magic leaves red hands and scrap for survival. We will get into this in a bit more depth later on, Anthony. But very encouraging signs from Mayo. We can see Keith Higgins celebrating there uh, yesterday. Encouraging from his perspective, uh, and from the likes of Andy Moran as well. Yesterday played well, and Aidan O'Shea. So the youth being injected into the squad is good, and Mayo need that. But perhaps if the dreamers out there who wanted another tilt at Sam Maguire. Uh, you probably want players like Keith Higgins coming back to some sort of uh, top-level form from, say, two years ago. Is it possible? Is it physically impossible? Only time will tell. Yeah. Uh, the Racing Post this morning was a big weekend of racing. Uh, what a belter. Bells Hill edges it in Irish Gold Cup thriller. And Godolphin spending review sets alarm bells ringing is the other story there. The back page of the Racing Post then is title defence. Uh, Red's rear guard should help them claim crucial victory at West Ham. It's an 8 o'clock kickoff tonight uh, at the London Stadium. You've got the tabloids. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. We've got the... Uh the Herald Sport here, obviously, um, usual stuff about uh, the Irish team, obviously about Aguero. But interestingly, Jim Gavin warns the dubs over Kingdom Starlets. He said that obviously the next Dublin's trip are going to Tralee in the next round. Um, and he's saying that uh, Kerry are full of young stars. Yeah, it's impossible to get a ticket now for uh, Saturday night. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I did a call out for, to try and get Six Nations tickets uh, last Friday on the show. I might be doing a call out to get tickets for family members <laughs> for Kerry against Dublin this week on this week's show. It's, yeah, that uh, should it, it should be a cracker. It should be a cracker. Um, you've also got a situation. You've got the banner, the bogey boys as Carlos don't go. Obviously, like I mean, you know, people are talking about the result of the weekend. Mm. Carlo Hurlers, you know, twenty points each against Galway is is fantastic. Um, you know, oh, it just probably. shows you the work that's being done down there, um, how they've been coming. You know, Carlo rising and everything else. It's absolutely like it's it's, it's it was a brilliant, brilliant. I don't know. I didn't actually see the game, so I don't know if they were unlucky not to win it or you know whatever. It I think was. it was a late equalising free uh, deep in injury time, which just sent that watch Colin Park into yeah. complete chaos. Uh, by all accounts from the game yesterday but the work that Bonner has done with that team he's got to be considered as one of 
the, like you talk about John Kiley's job over the last 18 months with Limerick. Absolutely. Bonner's job with uh, Carlo has to be right up there. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic. Now, it's, it's funny, you know, when you're down there and you're talking to fellas down in Kilkenny and Carlo and the surrounding areas, there's a lot of talent, you know, because they play underage and they play in the colleges and stuff like that. So it was just kind of getting it together. But there's only four senior clubs in Carlo. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. Which that's that's an incredible achievement. Like that, that's yeah. carry levels of Absolutely. Uh, like, even less. Uh, yeah, you got the Sun Sport here. Uh, over to you, Klopp. So Guardiola, you know, a little bit of uh, psychology obviously coming into it, saying, right, let's start heaping the pressure on them. Uh, Liverpool have probably felt comfortable enough in the last number of weeks. So, you know, a hat-trick yesterday did go to West Ham, obviously, tonight. So it'll be interesting to see, can they can they keep the run going? Yeah, it does kind of feel like we're into like the last three or four games of the season. And yeah. it's uh, the 4th of February, Liverpool fans. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of nerves amongst them watching every single game for the rest of the season. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you've got the Irish Daily Star here. You've got Carlo Cav, Real Bottle. Uh, again, you know, just to talk about Carlo, which is good to see. You've got Power Surge, obviously, about Aguero. Um, and then you've got Smith issues wake-up call, which I think is pretty apt. He's definitely going to have to do that. Um, and then the Mirror Sport, again, it's just Aguero. Uh, Rashford, 100 up. And Oli insists we've not seen the best of the young striker. Un- unbelievable. You know, you talk about the power that a manager can have over a player. Um, and to think a couple of weeks ago under Mourinho, mm. this guy was absolutely abject. Yeah. And now he's raking in the goals, you know, and there's a different prospect altogether. So, um, yeah, it's good to see him back going. Uh, and obviously, Solskjaer is getting a bit bullish about uh, United's chances. As he should be. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's amazing what, when you would say Rashford, it's amazing what uh, idolising your manager can actually do for your own sort of confidence. So, like, it obviously creates a greater amount of respect. And I'm sure he had that respect for Jose Mourinho as well. But maybe just the idea of the childlike joy he views Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in maybe just gives him that extra edge of enthusiasm. Yeah, you know, I think the Mourinho, and listen, you lads have spoken about it a lot, and lots of people have tried to analyse Mourinho and the way he, he works with teams. But, you know, his, his abrasiveness is sometimes can work for him and massively work against him, you know, and the way he tries to you know, kind of have conflict with fellas. Some guys don't like it, you know, and, some, and, and I don't know what his backroom team are like, but obviously... You know, as he started to slide and that it wasn't working, I think he tried to double down a lot and he tried to even, you know, really, you know, say, no, this is my way or the highway type thing. Um, and you can see that obviously it was a complete disaster for him. And Solskjaer, I'd say, has gone much more in with the old arm around the sh- shoulder Definitely. type. Um, and it's reaping the benefits. Without question. So we are going to turn our attention to the rugby next. Alan Quinlan will join us in the studio. Uh, we'll hear from Billy, Billy Vinupola in just a moment. But before that, here's Conor Murray speaking to Will. Um, we started poorly um, started poorly gave up a few easy scores um, England were on it they were on it ahead of us today and um, you know we found it hard to get momentum um, made a couple of mistakes and then ended up chasing again we actually we got back into it at half time we, we thought we'd settle things down and weathered the storm and thought we'd come out and, and change things a little bit but it um, wasn't to be and, and we ended up chasing and then you know when you're chasing a game like that from deep um you know, you, you, you know, the, the error, errors will get, um, you know, seized upon and, you know, they take advantage of that. And then I thought England were really good, especially in the air as well. You know, they, they cleaned up in the air. Um, we struggled to get in the contest today and, um, you know, they, they, they took it, took, you know, took the advantage out of that as well. Um, they kicked really well as well. So overall, we were, we were fairly beaten, I think. Were you a little bit surprised by how high they did press up and eat throughout the game? 
No, I think um, you know they're they're top side, and, and you know they 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 stopped their momentum today, and you know they, they put in really good, good hits out there. You know, a little bit of a struggle to get um, from football, but at times, like I said, we we thought we weathered the storm and um, got back into it. But you know they, they stayed in the fight, and, and again, I think they were just um, a bit more pumped than we were today for for whatever reason. We, we'll we'll go through with a fine tooth comb and see why that was. Um, you know, we had a great week of preparation, uh, two weeks of preparation, um, and for whatever reason, we were a little bit off it today, and. You know, they're, they're top side and, and, and they took advantage and you know, I think they, they fairly deserved their win so it's, it's just disappointing from our end um, You know in the week about praise making you weak um, which is why I keep saying it's very very important that we stay grounded uh, I know it's the first win um, I mean first game so hopefully um, you know we can put out a great performance against France uh, one we can hold our heads up high um, you know, it would be great occasions to be back at Twickenham. You know, that's probably my best memories missing out on that is, is playing at Twickenham in front of a home crowd. Billy, just in terms of the performance, was it a very conscious decision to go and press them as high up the pitch as you did because you know, it directly resulted in a couple of tries? I think you saw in the autumn, um, you know, it's, it's not just pressing from the outside, but everyone coming together. Um, and I thought we did that uh, amazingly well today. Um, you know, we, we were really together there as a unit, not just um, forwards, but backs and forwards. Um, and we put them uh, under a lot of pressure. You know, Ireland tend not to chase a lot of games, so um, I guess we ask them questions that maybe they haven't been asked before, and that's kind of where we um, got our successes from. Yeah, that was Billy Vunipola speaking after England beat Ireland in the Six Nations on Saturday. Alan Quinn is with us in the studio. How are you? I'm good, thanks, yeah. What happened? <laughs> he's just, <that's, laughs> you're like someone you, top. He, he's like someone I meet in the street now yeah. or uh, after the game on Saturday what happened you, the question I asked last night, week um, all week was what's going to happen and then what happened and why did that happen um, having watched the game back you see stuff that it's hard to kind of process at the moment everyone is talking about the physicality and that England brought a brutality which is very true, but they brought a lot of accuracy as well and and intelligence, particularly around the breakdown, uh, their kicking game and the pressure they put us under. And that's not any surprise. I said that stuff last week. Joe Schmidt would have known that. The players would have known that. Sometimes it's hard to counteract that. You would imagine and you would think that Ireland were just a tiny little bit off and emotionally and with a sense of desperation... England wanted to atone for obviously having a really bad Six Nations last year. Certain amount of pressure they're under, and Ireland winning and tweaking them, and they're being on, a, on such a pedestal. Um, Tuilagi said after the game, "It's bigger than beating New Zealand and tweaking them about three or four years ago. Beating Ireland now." Slade was talking about how big it was as well. So they were so up for this game, and that's kind of the level where Ireland are. All right, they haven't become a bad team overnight, but. I think they weren't smart the other day. Um, we were accused of being boring at the start of the, boring at the start of the week by John Mitchell, and England were in fact quite boring in Do their approach. So? Well, they kicked more than Ireland, um, but they were just way more accurate. They didn't overplay. They probably the only period of sustained pressure on our line was was um, just before half time. I've loads of issues with loads of stuff that happened in the game, sure. but I still think England were the better team, and I want to kind of reiterate that. Um, if I was in the England jersey, I'd be full of energy, full of enthusiasm because of the way that they stopped Ireland playing. They slowed their breakdown down, 
and they physically stopped him on the gain line. So it's very hard to problem solve in rugby when that's going on. I've been asked, what, what was the plan B? The plan B should have been uh, Johnny Sexton kick more out of hand. Um, mm. Territorially, not in, for the contestable box, box kicks, because we struggle with the box kicks. And to be fair, England very astutely and subtly blocked off any chance of a contest in the air. Mm. How many times have we seen Ireland go 50-50 in the air and win the ball back? Yeah. It's a great way. It's usually more than 50-50. Yeah, so every time that there was a box kick, there was nearly three English players running, sprinting back to get in front of the ball, and and they're blocking off guys, not to the point that it's deliberate blocking or elbows or knocking Irish players over, but it's just there was Irish players couldn't get in the air and contest. So they won all those collisions and those kind of moments. And you think of the likes of Stander, Furlong, Keane Healy, James Ryan, you know, the big carriers that would, that have been dominant and really powerful and good for this side, they were all stopped on the gain line. We had no kind of momentum over the line. So when you're stopped on the gain line or behind, you got a pile of bodies in, it's a bit of a dogfight. The defence can just take a step forward. They're all set again. Then there's another rook. They're set again. And it's just hard to play. And I think, if anything, we try to overplay at times. And it, it just kind of... The end, the end of the game, I think, after the, the Slade try when it was 17-13, um, that's the game gone. Yeah. Um, that was the forward pass, in my opinion. I think it's... Uh, you know, people are saying it's the the momentum and the ball moves forward, but he passes it three over three meters inside the halfway line when Johnny May gets it. Now that's uh, he's over the halfway line. That try was a complete turning point because um, just before that, Henshaw won a, a kick that was looked like it was going into touch. He knocked it in field, hit Henry Slade, it went went forward. Rory Best picked it up. Mm. Rock James Ryan carries Rock, and then Ringrose carries knock on. Garces had his hand out for a, for, a, for a scrum for Ireland, never said the advantage was over mm. and didn't go back for it, which he should have done. They get the try and they score. They get the scrum and they score often and that's the game gone. Now, Vunapolo's try before half-time, in my opinion, could have been given. I think England would have, were, were unfortunate with that. It's one of those interpretation ones. Did he hit the ground and propel himself forward? If you play it in slow motion, you can see that. But I think in real time, I'd be if that was an Irish situation, I'd be thinking we'd be we'd be disappointed with it. Um, the Earls, the Johnny May try, the first try, Keith Earls makes a wrong read. He comes out of the line. Very, very unlike someone in a Joe Schmidt team to make such a rash decision like that. Yeah, and I looked at the defence on that side. We had six defenders as opposed to five attackers, mm. so we actually had the numbers, but we were just way way too tight. Conor Murray was in the defensive line, and he actually looked at. Ben Young's first, and then he looked ahead to see who the English defenders were. But Young's was after getting an offload from Billy Vunapolo, so it was it ended up being really quick, and he just missed the jump. And I think Earl is just panicked then because Murray was so far behind him. Um, the Elliot Daly try was fortunate. You make your own fortune. We got yeah. the luck in Twickenham last year, so I'm not saying that these moments wouldn't have happened anyway. But I just thought England managed the game really well. And they just, they just dominated when they had to. And then they were just really comfortable without the ball. How many times did Johnny Sexton get the ball, ball off lineouts when Tom Curry was right in his face? Um, Slade and Tuolangi right up in Ringrose and Aki's face. So he generated no momentum. What's the plan B? 
just go boring. Just kick the letter off the ball well, with, ter- with territory. Because we're so used to problem solving and managing that situation. And after the first try from Johnny May, to be fair, we go up, we get a penalty. Sinclair doesn't run away, 7-3. Then we go up again, we get another penalty. Um, and to be fair, it was a very, very kickable penalty. And Sexton goes to the corner and I think, Jesus, this is very risky. But it's, it's a measure of the kind of strength and the confidence that they have. They go to the corner, they end up scoring um, the try from Keane Healy and it's 10-7 after not really playing well at all. And I thought, yeah, well, that's going to be a massive swing in the game. But England just, in fairness, they came back and they, they put Ireland back in, in their own half and they just kept them there again and they you know they forced them backwards. And then Daly scores a try and, and it's just a swing again. So those little swings and momentum, we didn't have enough of them and England did. Uh, and that was the difference. So, like... If Ireland played England again next Saturday, would they physically dominate him again? No, because I think there'd be better tactic. And you're obviously, if you get beaten up one week, you're going to come out firing the next yeah, week. Yeah, it's the yeah, same yeah, in yeah, any sport, yeah. Anthony. But credit to England. And in fairness, we slagged Jones, we slayed him, we've, we've given out about him. I've actually said on numerous occasions, he's actually a good good bloke away from from that environment. But he's mind games and he's thrown grenades everywhere. But yeah. he got his tactics right. And I think for two weeks... Or for the 10 days they were in Portugal, they organised a strategy and a structure to stop Ireland rather than here's how we're going to play this wonderful rugby. Keep it simple, run hard and physically we'll manhandle them around the side of rocks and slow their ball down and then they won't have an answer to that. We talk about the mindset there and you talk about Ireland's uh, aggression. Joe Schmidt was actually speaking after the game about Ireland's uh, aggression. We can actually uh, hear him talk about it now. Um, I, I think we were physically baited. Uh, I don't think I've seen a, a game where we've played where our opponents have got so many physical uh, dominant tackles, where our opponents have, have carried physically um, in the manner that they did. And it wasn't a surprise to us. We knew with the side that was picked, we knew that the, the power that they, they bring to the game, and, and I'd labelled some guys last Wednesday. Um, but, to, but to contain those guys is difficult. Our ball was slow. Uh, it was something that they talked about, slow our ball down, and it gives them an opportunity to take pot shots, and, and they took those shots well. So uh, when that happens, you're kind of forced to go to the air because it's the only way you can progress. And when that happens, we couldn't really get into the aerial battle. There was a lot of white jerseys in front of any aerial contest, and maybe we're a little bit too honest there. They got great access into the aerial contest going the other way. And, um, you know, it, it got quite physical, obviously, with Keith Eels. I, I, I don't think that was necessarily part of a plan, but it certainly put Keith out of the game. Um, and he was our most experienced back three player. Would you go along with all of that? Yeah, it's, he was very clear and accurate and I think honest in, in his assessment there. And um, he didn't try and hide away from the fact that... Um, they were beaten up and it's very frustrating um, sitting in a dressing room after that it's one thing to be beaten by a great play and a really big performance but when you mention the, the physical stuff particularly for the forwards one thing that always was was um, a real bugbear if we got bullied in matches and, so, and it's not about being stronger or being tougher it's just as a unit England were just so cohesive and intelligent 
and they were just really smart with the way they defended. They didn't turn that around mid-game at all when you know that it's going against you and you know the dominant tackle count is rising for the opposition. It's hard because there's a belief that you'll get it, you'll fix it by holding on to the ball. Um, and then when the Slade try goes in, I sense that Ireland, even for all the issues that they had at 17-13, that they were going to get a moment where they got up there again. They were going to get another chance if they kept it at 17-13. Now, I know Farrell missed a kick before that, but I sensed that they were going to get a chance. They were going to get a moment, even if it was in, in, heading into the 70th minute or whatever. That try just killed the game. Mm. So I think they believed that what they've done in the last year and the last couple of years and what Leinster have done in Europe last year, there was enough of those players in the field that they could fix it and they, they were going to get a moment where something went right and they just changed it. And then even if they got another penalty to make it 17-16, well, it's, it's a different approach from England and it's nerves and it's the crowd are going off their feet. And, but, that, but like to be fair to England, I didn't see them crumbling at any stage or looking shaky. Even when Much Ireland, the opposite, actually. Yeah, they were, they were growing all the time. Even vocally, you could hear them, the ref's mic, they were screaming, they were full of energy. And that's a plan. Sometimes you can actually say, right, if the three of us are going out together, I want you screaming at me when I do something and shout. And that's what they do. That's what Saracens do. <clears throat> it's irritating to the opposition. And in fact, even if you're putting it on, you, you do get energy from it. Yeah. And it was energy, energy, energy all the time on Saturday. So it's no surprise to me, Owen, because I think the surprise maybe in the end is the scoreline. It, 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 it is a big panic. Like, I don't end. think anybody really saw us getting yeah, the panic. Happy. The panic. I, I yeah. thought it was, look, it was a four po- three, four-point game either way, I thought. And I genuinely was trying to be honest with that last week. On Saturday, which is closer to the game, which I, as a, a, as a former player and a pundit or whatever you want to call now, I, sa- I always like to, I think come day, game day, I'm more definitive of where we're going because you process the, the, what's said during the week and I like to get a feel at the stadium and what's going on. You're looking at the body language, the warm-up. And when I saw the English team, I was like, they look, there's something about them. And I started to sense that and I was getting a bit of nerves in the tummy and I just thought, I don't think we're going to win this game. What was your take on the Henshaw situation? Um... It's difficult for any outside backs, first and foremost, because Murray and Sexton were poor as well, mm. but it's difficult for any outside backs if the eight forwards are, are, are not providing a, a kind of a good platform. Some of Owen Farrell's kicks, which exposed Robbie Henshaw a little bit, were, were on the run. Loads of time, he's, he's nearly running, and you know, Rodge is obviously so much experience and, and was an incredible player and he spoke about that when we, we did the highlight show in Virgin Media yesterday, last night about that you, you just can't um, overestimate the value of of having that extra second and you're nearly in a run kick mode mm. and Farrell was able to do that and he's able to find a bit of space I thought Robbie Henshaw was possibly out of position a couple of times the one up the middle of the field Farrell saw a lot of green space there he did incredibly well to get back and there was a few moments that on the sides where you thought maybe he could close off the channel a little bit more it's a difficult place and that was my only concern last week so does he stick with him again or does he make a change what would you do I'd stick with him again because you're completely taking away that option Forevermore, if you dry, if you don't go with him now, I think you've just got to be make sure he trains better this week and and watches and learns from 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 what went on. Rob Carney, for any of his critics over the years, that's one of his biggest strengths. Is not well in the air is an obvious one, but just his positional play and 
And fullbacks, great fullbacks, can sense and anticipate even before the ball leaves the, the scrum half's hands where they're going to try and kick and their body language and their shape as halfbacks. So it was a tough one for him, but again, that platform and that that negativity had started up front. Is that, it fair to say... Sorry. No, sorry, Owen. Like, I mean, you know, they were obviously came with a game plan. Like, I, I watched it and I thought that, they, as you rightly said there, they focused on Ireland for the last number of weeks and they obviously saw areas of weakness or maybe perceived weakness where they could go after whereas Ireland as you say I think they just played their normal game was that like was Schmidt out kind of managed a, a, a little bit out Fox maybe but it's easier when you're losing and you look at someone who's winning yeah. um, right if you look at the Dublin football team if you were to break down the last kind of 10 dominant matches they've had and said well look this is what to do well this is what to do well sometimes it's still impossible to stop it mm, mm. but if you actually stop it once or twice and then there's a little bit of what do we do next? This is what we do all the time, and it's brilliant, and we work this. And So Ireland's biggest strength over the years has been breakdown, the amount of possession, the time they hold onto the ball, and they wear teams down. And then they pick their moments, and they have one of these brilliant plays off a scrum or a line-out, and they, they get a seven-pointer, and then the opposition get deflated, and they, they manage the game well. Um, so I just thought that... England were completely able to focus on here's what Ireland do well yeah yeah well stop them at that and they probably focus more on stopping Ireland and then having the ability to have good players in the field they had six British and Irish lines in their forward pack but that that has to be a big worry Alan Farrell you know young (coughs) brilliant players but if you stop what Ireland do well which every team is going to go out and do yeah yeah, for sure that's a huge worry if we lose that spectacular yeah so I just think we we didn't start the game well so we didn't have a line up where Aki went up the middle of the field ran out over Farrell was a couple of quick rocks and we got across the gain line and you go mm-hmm. you know they started well so they grew in confidence and then you know they got that early try it's a seven pointer even though we got back ahead yeah, the crowd. their response then again was play 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 but they got us you know the try for Elliot Daly's try was you know a soft score they didn't have to pummel us uh, for 25 phases to get it but they were very accurate in what they were trying to do and, and we probably expected them to crash up the middle a bit more and there was come subtle passes out the door where we go out the back a lot and they were able to just get off the line and, 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 and defend us. Is, is it potentially a good thing for Schmidt and the management team that they have to now really focus on this? Well, it takes B? away a lot of the maybe silly talk about that we're, we're yeah. impenetrable and we're unbeatable and we're incredible and we're going to do... Like, I, I'll be honest with you, and to be fair to Joe, he's very humble and he's very grounded and he always gives, you know, speaks about you're only kind of one defeat away and, and there's a lot to work on and stuff like that and some people say it's it's pragmatic and it's only one week ahead but he'll know the pitfalls and I think they will learn from this defeat now it doesn't get bloody any easier you oh, could no, do it no, you could no. do it in Italy at home or uh, just to kind of recalibrate and get the conference going again and, and but like going to Murrayfield they're going to be seething and really really looking forward to Ireland going there and, and believing they'll win I guarantee you Gregor Towns will be thinking we can beat Ireland here if Scotland win again you know they could suddenly have three or four wins in this championship because I think they'll go to Paris and win Scotland will um, they've got Wales and Murrayfield as well and then they're away to England the last game which is they'd love to be going for a championship mm. decider so if they beat 
if they beat Ireland, it's massive for them. Huge. They did two years ago, but I think we, we're the ones with the desperation this week. One last one before you go back onto News Talk for the radio. Danny Murphy's been in touch to say, what did Quinny think of the ref for the game? Should have told you have got a yellow. I told you should have got a yellow, and I thought Garces was really, really poor. Um, even for the, the sequence just before half-time, Rory Best took a quick throw, which England did for, for the first try, where they threw out over the line-out for Manu Tulangi's charge. Like, Best took a tr- quick, you know, it wasn't, it, they were set. And Garces said, well, I'm talking to someone. But, like, it's play on. And then when, the, when they reset it, he threw it, and it went across in the England line, which is not crooked. He called it crooked. If it goes across on the Irish side, you know, Mahoney had to reach across to get it, but it's not crooked. It should be play on. They get the scrum, and there's just moments like that. The Henry Slade pass was forward. Etoja should have been a yellow. I thought Curry's one was possibly harsh, but you can see here in the, the still shot where Slade gives the pass. When, where Johnny May catches that, is he's a half a yard over the halfway line. So I... I know you're talking about momentum and the ball travelling forward, but that's a forward that's, pass. Yeah, it certainly it's seems it's clear way. there, you can see it. I'm sure there'll be plenty more discussion about that uh, throughout the course of the week. But the better team won, yes. and credit to England. <laughs> Without you know what question. I mean? Look. Quinny, thanks many for coming in, I know you've got a rush. So uh, up next we're chatting to Mike Carlson, live in Atlanta after Super Bowl 53. First of all, here's a snippet of yesterday's Sunday paper review. Andy McGeady and Keena Foley joined Joe in studio, and they discussed David Snade's piece on Aidan O'Brien in the Mail on Sunday. So I think it's a really interesting piece for anybody who's interested in soccer and also that that understanding where some of these people who declare for Ireland, where they come from and what's influenced It's, and it's and one of the things where we miss a lot. It's yeah. Yeah. We, we always, you know, why are the, you know, why are the rugby team flavour of the month? Because, well, a lot of them live in Ireland or we, we know them, we know their stories, they are, they're seen all the time. And we do miss this bit of where these people outside the island come from. Yeah. What what makes them? What what makes them go? I mean, he, he's saying here that the Irishness was never foisted upon him. It was yeah. just there. Yeah. We don't get that. Mm. We do not. There's a fundamental part inside this that does not understand that, and it should be explained to us. And Liam Miller, again Liam Miller recently again. did a great interview, and it was that was exactly his point as well, Andy, which was that you know it was it was never fake Irishness. We were Irish. We felt Irish, and he says the same thing. My mum had four sisters and five brothers. Must have had forty cousins when when we went around the house. It was all Irish. Yeah. We, we are an emigrant nation. Yeah. We have a diaspora that, that it's one of our great things we give to the world and this is one of the times where we get something back through sport to the people. who They, they put roots somewhere else but the home, even though physically is somewhere else, the home is Irish. And I don't think we get that. And stories like this are need good. Them, they, they are yeah. great and we need more of them. Yeah. All right, so the final score in the Super Bowl was New England Patriots 13, Los Angeles Rams 3, and live from Atlanta, I'm delighted to say that Mike Carlson has decided to stay up and talk to us this morning. A very good morning to you, Mike. Ah, good morning, yeah. As alive as I can be after refreshing myself uh, down in the hotel bar when, when we got back finally from walking back from the stadium. It's a zoo out there in Atlanta. And it's amazing because it's a New England zoo. Um, there are so many people wearing Patriots jerseys in the streets of Atlanta, and there have been uh, ever since I got here. It, it was almost like a home home game for the Patriots. Yeah, I, I saw Kevin Clark of the Ringer last night saying, there's almost no Rams in here. It feels like Los Angeles. <laughs> yes, and maybe the maybe the Rams fans who flew to Atlanta actually flew out tonight before the game so they could beat the traffic home. <laughs> Potentially, I, I guess the, the first question I have to ask about the game is what the hell was that? Was that the worst Super Bowl we've seen? 
I, I see. I didn't. I didn't. I enjoyed it actually. I, um, uh, enjoyed is probably the wrong word, but I didn't think it was a bad game simply because it was always so close, and it was the kind of game where you're waiting for one big play that's actually going to uh, turn it around. And and I really thought um, at at different points that the Rams were going to break it open. You know, when they made a couple of they they had about two they had two times in the second half where they they started a drive. Um, but they just couldn't they couldn't keep it going. And and I was I was convinced, you know, if, if that if McCordy doesn't catch up and bat that pass out of um, Brandon Cook's hands in the end zone, it's a completely different game. Mm. Um, and and I would have been curious to see what happened. But there was some ferocious defense being played and some really great coaching. So I guess it's more as a purist that you'd appreciate that game. It, it wasn't a badly played game. It was a very well-played game by both teams' defenses. Uh, and would you put that down to just brilliant defensive coordination, or was there a bit of slackness on the offense from both sides? Um, on, on the, on the, uh, the, the Rams came out and played very well defensively. They adjusted after the first drive where the Patriots looked like they were going to do what they had done in the previous two playoff games. Um, I, I think the main thing they did was to start having their, their three up linemen, um, Sue, Sue and Donald and um, Brockers, not not to play the usual sort of straightforward holding your position going forward, but to, but to slide side to side to, to ruin some of the Patriots' blocking angles. And that seemed to work really well um but they wore down as the as the game went on Uh, on the Patriots side I think the one thing that we probably should have anticipated but didn't we're used to the Patriots trying to take away the other team's best weapon or two best west weapons from a game and in this game they were able to do that but they had actually decided the person they had to take away the most was Jared Goff Mm. And I did say before the game, I thought they would play this a lot like they did with Philip Rivers, and they did play it that way, uh, although they blitzed more in this game. They had only really been sending four rushers for most of the time in the previous two playoff games, but they sent five a lot, and they played a lot of coverage, which was straight man-to-man, no no, co- no covering safety behind the uh, quarterback. And you would have expected a coach like Sean McVay would have been able to to take advantage of that. Um, and, and indeed, I think he actually did, but Jared Goff missed a lot of throws he, that he either didn't see because of pressure or he rushed the throw because of pressure or the one that was intercepted, um, he, was, he slipped you know, kind of backing up as he mm. threw the ball. He was trying to back away from pressure. So I, I think the Patriots had a brilliant defensive plan, which they executed pretty well, but I was surprised that Sean McVay didn't adjust his offense more um, to try to cope. We didn't see the the kind of um, the kind of screens and swing passes to Todd Gurley that you might see when t- a team is blitzing you a lot. And yes, the Patriots uh, were, were sort of aligned to try to stop that. The tight ends, he only threw one pass to end to his two tight ends, and I thought they would become a bigger weapon in, in that offense. Uh, and as I said, Goff just never seemed to be able to get to a second read. Uh, if his primary read wasn't opened, he occasionally still threw that pass, and, and that was indeed what happened with the interception. Right, so I, I guess that's a sign of a quarterback who is a little bit affected by the pressure, but it also sounds like there's a bit of blame to be had on Sean McVay's head and a little bit of blame on, I guess, the inexperience of Jared Goff. 
Yeah, I think those things go together um, hand in hand. And, and, you know, the business with McVeigh manipulating Goff, uh, you know, while he's talking in his ear uh, before the play is somewhat exaggerated, but I think not completely because I think Goff still isn't um, isn't completely comfortable in, in what McVeigh would like to do. And there um, he has to be able to see more of those things before the um, the play, and more importantly, I think during the play, he has to be able to throw people open. But to do that, you, you need to be able to, to get to your second read or your third read um, to do that. He, when he's comfortable, he can do that. He sees the receiver as he comes open, or, or but when he's not, he doesn't. He doesn't. He waits for the receiver to become open before he throws the ball. And he's got a good arm, but you know, very few people have the kind of arm that can make that kind of throw. Um, uh, consistently, because when the longer you wait, the more time you're giving the defense to get back into position, and, and the more risk you're putting yourself at as a quarterback. Sure, and of course, the funny thing here is that with Tom Brady's first throw of the game, he threw an interception pass, and he managed to recover from that as we all expected him to do. Uh, what did you rate? How, how did you make his performance out to be last night? Was it one of these great performances where Tom Brady himself almost knew his limitations? Yes, uh, very much so, and and it wasn't. Yeah, you know, I don't even think it was a great performance. He missed a lot of throws in this game that he he should have made against a very good defense. Um, but when they needed a score, he made two of the three best throws that he he had thrown the whole game. The two to Gronk were both per- perfect throws, and he threw the one to Gronk, the second one um, into triple coverage. Basically, <laughs> there were three guys chasing chasing Gronkowski, who still lumbers along like like an old rusty tractor, you know, that, that whose engine needs repairing. Uh, but Brady threw it in in you know we always say things like oh where only Gronk could catch it. It wasn't where only Gronk could catch it. It was where only Gronk could make a play on it. Right. Um, it, you know, it wasn't like in his hands. He knew that Gronkowski would go would go forward for it. And then we saw a bit toward the end of the game that the Rams defense, like like the Chiefs defense of the week and the the Chargers, had just got gassed, like the Atlanta defense in the Super Bowl two uh, two years ago. They'd been on the field too long, and they were just really starting to tire down um, in, in the front. And and they're not a big at the second level, the linebackers, they're not a big team. Their, their linebackers are fast, small, but not run-stopping pluggers the way you would want them to be. Um, Littleton had a pretty good game, but it, it was funny. We said during the game, on, on the first of the that final drive, drive um, for the touchdown, and Gronk's going up the sidelines, Littleton, Gronk blocks him first and then gets away. And Littleton is so intent on holding him back that he, he fails to realize he could probably beat Gronkowski down the field to the point where he wants to do. So he could have kind of been in coverage um, uh, otherwise. But, you know, this is going to go down, I think, as a, a boring Super Bowl, um, certainly the, the lowest scoring. But it was it was a chess game to a big extent. And, you know, and football is kind of like a chess match, except that you you have you have live you have live gladiators as chessmen. 
so that you can you can put everybody in the right positions and all. But if but if their pawn kicks your pawn over, uh, you know, when he's not supposed to, then 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 you lose. But, you know, Belichick won won that chess game. And I think the Patriots just on points kind of won the slugging match. Yeah, it certainly seemed that way. It was kind of weird as well that after one of the great offensive seasons of all time, we got a Super Bowl like this. I guess we, we were due a game like this eventually in the offseason. Yeah, you remember when when um, when they beat the the Chiefs fifty four fifty one, and I was on with you and Jer, and and said, um, you know, this isn't the way the, the season's going to go. Mm. You know, it, it's not the the modern the modern thing of football. And I just think it, it's fantastic after um, uh, you know shutting out the Chiefs in the first half last week. They then come out and virtually shut out the Rams for the whole game. The 54-point team got three points against this defense, which again, on paper, as we, as I've said almost the whole season, just does not look like a great defense. But they but they play that way. Um, yeah, and they're very well coached, very well disciplined, and, and the differences come up front in, in the playoffs, really. You know, maybe a bit in December, but mostly in the playoffs. They've just come out with a a plan to generate pass rush on a team that doesn't have an outstanding pass rusher, uh, not a single a star pass rusher, and you could see them working on that the last few games of, of December, and you saw it really clearly at the beginning of this game, where they would be on defense, they would be in this kind of like mill around, you know, in a little concentrated triangle, and then as the Rams came out, they would then spread into whatever defense they were going to run just to keep the Rams from from seeing that. Mm. Um, but all the time you saw them blitzing with with extra players that they weren't expecting to come through spots and and almost blocking. And both teams did this a bit, but the Patriots did it a lot. You you have your rushers basically occupy the pass blockers so that another rusher can get by um, and find an alley. Uh, so it's almost like a running play in reverse. Right. And the Patriots did that really well uh, in this game. That's very interesting. So I guess from a Bill Belichick point of view, you've spoken about Sean McFay already. Defensively, it was a masterclass from the greatest coach of them all. It really was. Um, Gilmore was left pretty much to defend Cooks on his own um, for, mo- for almost the whole game. And he did a pretty good job of it um, in, in the end. Uh, the play where Cooks should have caught the touchdown, they were in a zone. And, uh, and it was right after Chung had gone out and whoever the central safety was in that zone – went forward as Cooks ran by him to pick up someone else. You could see the blown assignment. Um, you could see the blown assignment there. But when you watched up front, they, they did really well until the point where Hightower went out for about three plays. with a, He injured his hand, and they really needed Hightower in there because he's kind of the brains of that defense um, when, when, they're, when they're setting up. And it, it, was, it was a masterful performance. Um, I thought the Rams defense played in almost as well. It's just they couldn't stop Julian Edelman. Uh, and then in the fourth quarter, yeah, I, I said this during the show, but I, I'll say it again because a lot of your audience wouldn't have watched it. I had the I had the sense that somebody walked up to Gronk on the sidelines at the start of the fourth quarter and said, "Look, Gronk, you know this may be your last quarter of playing football. Let's do it." You know, and and it was like you saw you saw still he was creaky, but you saw a bit of that old Gronk uh, mm. coming out there and making those catches in the in the third. I did. Ho- I do hope you took the under on this game. 
<laughs> we, we lost Ger when he's in tomorrow. I'm sure he had a bit of money on something uh, with regards to the game. Uh, I do want to ask you about uh, Julian Edelman before we wrap up. Obviously, uh, MVP last night, probably key to the Pats' offense, many will say. But there's obviously a big question mark from my perspective looking at Julian Edelman because he missed the four, first four games of the season, Mike, due to uh, a performance-enhancing drug ban. Does anybody care about this? Has it been spoken about much in the aftermath of the game? Or is it kind of like everybody put on a smile and uh, don't, don't, don't think about the idea that the MVP in the biggest game of our sport uh, has served a drugs ban? It's funny because Brady was MVP two years ago and he'd served the four-match ban, although that was for not obeying Roger Goodell um, you know, and handing over his, his mobile phone. Um, but I haven't, I've seen a couple of tweets from people saying, now, if this were baseball, he wouldn't have been eligible for the postseason. Hmm. Um, although I find that a little bit strange in the sense that if a guy is suspended and then comes back, you're suspending him again. Uh, and then it doesn't, it doesn't quite, I understand the, I understand the reason for it, but it doesn't quite make, make that sense to me in the NFL world. It went unmentioned. I, I, in fact, I didn't even think of it until after the game, um, you know, in, in the euphoria of ending a, ending a, a bad, a bad game, but, um, a, a, a very tight game. And I, in the end, I don't really think it's going to matter, um, that people, I don't think people will, will think of that. Uh, it's funny with Julian Edelman too, because he's um, he's such a good story in the sense of hard, you know, hardworking rags to riches, late draft choice, switches from quarterback to to wide receiver. Um, doesn't get much credit for a long time. Not particularly, you know. Uh, well, he's looked at as being sneaky fast, like like most uh, white receivers are in, in the game. And, and literally, the Rams had no way to stop him. And at one point, they were double teaming him, and and whoever had him at the line of scrimmage was was literally just hanging on uh, and, and waiting for help. And they still they still couldn't stop him. I I would be really surprised if anyone puts that question to him. Yeah, so would I. I mean. <laughs> I didn't watch the post the post match press conferences or anything like that, but you know I, I would be I would be surprised if anyone pushed to him because I think I, it's not so much that the country accepts it, although I think they do, but it's that the league doesn't want to talk about that. And yeah, like it, it's not exactly a great message to be sending out, is it? That the MVP of the Super Bowl has served a drugs ban to people who you know maybe in a position to consider this sort of thing that this guy did it not only did he get away with it he's been awarded with uh, the biggest individual award on the biggest stage in our biggest game in America yeah that that's I'm sure we'll get that take you know it's like well if that's what Edelman can do then everyone else ought to go out and do some steroids in the mm. summer and and take the first four games off and you come back fresher and play better in the in the the um in the second in the second half uh, the the contrary argument will be which you hear a lot in, in other sports as well as you know he, he's just trying to get better and he made a little mistake uh, you know and, and went too far and he's learned his lesson um, I'm, I'm the kind of person that says once you once you're punished you should that should be it you know you, you serve your you do your time and and uh, and then, then that should be over, and you you should get your your second chance at it uh, at whatever you're doing. So I'm not that bothered by it, but in an abstract sense, it does put a little shadow over the game. Uh, Mike, that's pretty much all we got time for. Before uh, we wrap up, I must ask you about the the big battle last night: Maroon Five versus Travis Scott versus Big Boy. Who came out on top at halftime? 
Um, I'd like to say I bothered to watch it, but I would say the uh, undisputed champion of it was Gladys Knight. And I just wish that they had left all those people in the car park and let Gladys Knight do the halftime show all by herself. Because I think I think it would have been better. Her national anthem was one of the best ones I've heard in years. Uh, probably the best one since Aretha Franklin uh, at, the, at the Hearns fight. Um, and I should point out, too, that if you do come to Atlanta, there's a bar called uh, Rira. Uh, where I watched the Ireland-England match, and um, it was a, it's a nice Irish bar, which is good because I needed stuff to drown my sorrows. That <laughs> I think we've all been drowning our sorrows for the last 48 hours. Uh, Mike Carlson, thanks so much for all your coverage during the season, and uh, go enjoy that sleep tonight. Okay, thanks, guys. Anytime, next season, whatever. Yeah, Mike Carlson there joining us uh, just a little bit before we came on air this morning, live from Atlanta after... A bad Super Bowl. I think we can go halfway there. It was a bad Super Bowl. He said Gladys Knight was with a great anthem. I woke up at half 11 last night, so I missed the anthem. It turns out I missed the best part of the entire night, uh, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, We're going to get uh, Darren Cleary in just a moment. Before that, uh, here's a clip from the pay-per-view yesterday. Ronan McNamee revealing himself as a rather old-school footballer. Just for all of us who were saying that. You know, this is great. GA players don't say anything anymore. Yeah, this is great. Introducing Ronan McNamee. Um, so, he's, well, he's 27 now. He's been around a long time. Seventh season. Yeah, he's a really good player for Tyrone. Michael says he's finding the uh, game he loves harder and harder to find. He is old school. Go back to the clips from the 1980s, says McNamee. Drops an F-bomb. <laughs> they just battered each other. Nobody said anything. And he loves that one. You see where Colin O'Neill just smacks Mick Lyons and he just smacks him. And he doesn't go down. He just looks at him. Today, if someone gets their hair rubbed, they're holding their face. And then, of course, Mick mentions Tiernan McCann. Yeah, Tiernan McCann, who really has probably never <laughs> lived that down, even though I must say the guy has played brilliantly for Tyrone ever since. Yeah, um, yeah it's, um, McNamee was involved in a punch-up in the, um, in the McKenna Cup final recently. So it's kind of on foot at that. But I love the way he is so straight because, you know, now uh, it's, it's rare enough that, that, you know, GA players are not told, you know, be careful what you say and all that. He, none of that. He's having none of it. Um, and he's really, he, he, and he also has a go at the pundits and says, like, look at the pundits, look what they were at in their days. And he, he says, Colin, Mac- Colin O'Rourke was no saint when he was playing, but if anyone lifts a hand now, he seems to have something. Same about Kieran Whelan. His elbows were sharpened on a grinder for years and there was never anything said about it. It's and you can nice. just hear him saying that with the Tyrone accent. It's brilliant. Elbows sharpened on a Grinder. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of poetry. Great stuff there yesterday from Ronan McNamee uh, in the newspapers. If you want to catch the full papers pod, it's up on our website, uh, offtheball.com. Darren Cleary, very good morning to you. Morning, all. Um, the topic of uh, sharp elbows, Milesy, I'm not sure if you come up against any dubs that uh, would be so close to Darren's heart that have sharp elbows like Kieran Whelan. Uh, yeah, I was uh, on the recipient of a few sharp elbows, one or two from Kieran in his day. Shane uh, Ryan had sharp elbows as well. Yeah, he had, yeah. Well, listen. The little fella got a pie. Yeah. Sharp elbows were a thing of those days. <laughs> <laughs> and you were allowed sharpen. Those were the times. Yeah. So. Everybody had sharp elbows, but some of the, some people used them better than others, yeah, I suspect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the best one was, I think, I can't remember what, what year it was. I don't know if it was 04 or 05. Um, but during the throw-in, I was playing midfield with Nigel Crawford and there was Shane Ryan and Kieran Whelan. I don't know if you remember this game. And um, there was a, the referee from Longford, I think. And anyway, as he threw up the ball, there was a bit of jazz. And Whelan just turned around, bang, just hit Nigel straight across the chin and dropped him. And of course, he got a yellow. <laughs> like it was just, it was kind of like, this is the most blatant red card ever. And he was like, no, we'll just give you a yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caution there for that one. Probably had a few of them in his career. 
We probably well, could yeah, have got a red I mean, and yeah, escaped with the well, yellow. Listen, you know, he set a marker down anyway, that was for sure. But like the thing is, of course, now the dubs have got rid of all of that, haven't they, Darren? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the dark arts is a thing of the past. I I thought it was funny, though. I mean, we're probably replace sharp elbows with um, lunging knees to the back of the head. I think that's now the new acceptable oh. one, is it? Well, yeah, Mike actually, we had. Uh, I forgot about this. The uh, two of you were having a bit of Twitter beef there this, this day last <laughs> week about the whole uh, Jack McCarran knee to the head. Opportunistic. Uh, opportunistic. Well, look, you know, if, I, I actually think he was just. He was probably just his head happened to get in the way of just. It's, you know, just slice this. Just a very, just, very. Quick just a natural thing reaction. Yeah, and you're just kind of going down. You know, mm. I have to say, I didn't see much in the Macaulay one. I think he was he lost control of the ball he kind of ducked down yeah. uh, and the hand came up you know which was probably you know him going into his chest <coughs> and next thing he just found it like I mean really I didn't it was unfortunate for Macaulay but the part that annoyed me about that one was it reminded me of last year with Cooper on Desi Reynolds in the Longford game where everyone was calling for Johnny Cooper to get a red card because fair enough he did make contact with the face as Reynolds was kind of taking a tumble down mm. but there was no such clamour when Macaulay got a box in the head I think you're never going to eliminate full contact to the face in a full contact game without watering it down to the point where it's not what it should be but at the same time I think there is there's going to be room for error in a full contact game well, we are talking about something that happened 8 days ago at this point there and, has, there has and, been a game and since, 6 months ago yeah there has been a game since then are you like uh, bullish again was, was the 5 in a row train were the wheels coming off this time last week and now they're back on I was pretty measured last week. I said, you know, beaten by the better team, probably a few weeks behind Monaghan and a lot of the teams in the league because for whatever reason, Jim and the players had an extended break into the winter and a lot of them only came back off holidays, maybe seven, ten days before that Monaghan game. I, I only saw the highlights, I must admit. I didn't see the, the full game the last day, but it was an improved performance. A few new players in and a few new faces in and still a couple of guys to come back too. So, yeah, it was a positive enough weekend. And is there Be wary any PR? of Dublin when they're being gracious in the feet. <laughs> well, I was going to say, is there any PR message you want to push out this week? <laughs> By all means. <laughs> like an address to camera. <laughs> Dear Dublin fans, this is this week's agenda. Mossy Quinn has just been on. He says, this is what we have to talk about. And no, I'm not the PR arm of Dublin GAA, no matter what the Mayo Mafia Nathan Murphy says. <laughs> uh, we are going to get into that Dublin game in just a moment. Of course, it's going to be uh, Kerry against Dublin this weekend uh, in Tralee. But there is other stuff going on this morning, I suspect. Yes, we'll start with the Premier League on a man. City have cut Liverpool's lead at the top of the Premier League table to two points for a few hours at least. Pep Guardiola's side beat Arsenal 3-1 thanks to a hat-trick from Sergio Aguero. It was the striker's 10th career hat-trick in the Premier League. Alan Shearer does hold that distinction. He's got 11. That's the record. So Aguero now just one behind him. The leaders Liverpool looking to return to winning ways after being held at home by Leicester City in midweek. They face a West Ham side hoping to avoid a third straight defeat. Striker Marco Arnautovic will be assessed after limping off against Wolves with a foot injury. Manuel Pellegrini hoping the keeper Lucas Fabio Jansky's back, he's got an arm issue, while Aaron Cresswell is carrying a hamstring problem. Jorgen Klopp will assess the fitness of Virgil van Dijk, he's been struggling with illness. Jordan Henderson and Georgino Wijnaldum. Trent Alexander-Arnold has a knee injury, so the game will come too soon for him. Manchester United are up to fifth in the Premier League table this morning after beating Leicester City 1-0. Marcus Rashford got the only goal of the game. Manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer pleased to get the win because he knows they weren't near their best. We put our bodies on the line, blocked a few... Uh, we know we can play better, but you can't play fantasy football every time. And today we we could have controlled the game more, but when we didn't, we, we fought for the next ball, we fought for the next ball, we fought for our mates uh, next to us, we put our heads on the line, we put our bodies on the line, and um, it was a great defensive performance from inside the box, I have to say. And just like Wembley, Pogba, wonderful through ball, and a great finish from Marcus for the goal. 
Yeah, they. Uh, you know, when when they get to know each other, they play more and more together, know each other's strengths, uh, and with the quality they've got, uh, you expect uh, that quality there. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful pass, great finish. Harry Kane says he will step up his recovery from an ankle injury this week and he is optimistic of making an earlier than expected return for Tottenham. The England striker damaged ligaments in his ankle during their defeat against Man United last month and he's missed the last five games in all competitions. The 25-year-old ruled out until March and was not expected to return to training until early next month but Kane has offered an encouraging update on his return to fitness. It's going well. Uh, went away, that's say, some warm weather training. Uh, yeah, stepping it up. Uh, we'll see next week how we go. Probably uh, start to get the balls out uh, next week and just see how the ankle reacts. You know, it's, it's going well so far, but uh, we just got to take our time with it and make sure we get it right. On schedule, ahead of schedule, how do you feel? Yeah, this, I've, I never put a time on, on any of my injuries. It kind of just how how the, how it feels. Uh, like I said, the ankle feels great at the moment. Uh, it feels good. So uh, as long as kind of the swelling stays away and uh, we can cre- uh, keep progressing, then that'd be great. CJ Stander could miss the rest of Ireland's Six Nations campaign after suffering a facial injury in the uh, devastating defeat to England. The Grand Slam champions went down 32-20 in a bruising encounter at the Aviva Stadium. The Munster man reportedly suffered fractures in his cheek and eye socket. Keith Earls is struggling with a hip injury. Devon Toner picked up an ankle injury. There's the tweet uh, revealing that from his brother-in-law that he suffered those injuries and continued to play on. No word yet, though, on Keith Earls with the hip injury and Toner with the ankle problem. Joe Schmidt has less than a week to regroup before a visit to Murrayfield to face Scotland, who beat Italy in their first game. Ireland will relive the devastating defeat in the video room today when they look over the analysis. The squad will go through the video and Conor Murray admits it's not something he's relishing. Look at our errors and look what went wrong. Um, why we were off it a little bit, and you know, focus on Scotland, England's done now. We can't do anything about it. We learn from it. We'll in, in the meeting room and, and review it and, and things like that. But we got to look at Scotland now because they're they're quality side too. You know, you can you can spin it that way as well and, and look at it as a as a, a positive. We don't feel like that now because it's a loss and it's tough to take. But we were off a little bit and probably physically um, to start things off. It was there's no you know um, signs that you know we were just off it a little bit. We didn't front up enough and. Um, Lost the collisions, and, and that was that was that in a, in a nutshell. Really, there's obviously going to be other areas we're going to look at, but um, yeah, physically we know we we can be there. We know we can be up at that level. We were just we were just off, and we gotta we gotta sort that out. But I have full confidence in this group. Really, I, I genuinely do. We'll we'll have a hard look at ourselves. We're an honest group. We'll we'll regroup and regather ourselves and, and go again. Good weekend for Mayo. They've taken top spot in the Alliance Division 1 of the Football League. They recorded an impressive 2-13-10 win over Tyrone and Oma. Kerry had three points to spare as they overcame Cavan. Sean O'Shea hit 12 for the Kingdom. They edged that game by 16 points to 13. Roscommon defeated Monaghan by 1-12 to 13. In Division 2, a Kevin Feely penalty helped Kildare to a 1-10-10 win over Cork at Porky Cueve. Elsewhere, Tip and Fermanagh shared the spoils after a 2-5 apiece draw in front of 667 spectators at Sample Stadium. Armagh and Clare played out a 113 to 210 draw as well. David Turberty scored a late goal to help the banner rescue that result. Clare got their first Allianz League points on the board after edging out Kilkenny by 220 to 122. John Conlon Podge Collins got the goals in the narrow win. Wexford defeated Cork by 118 to 17 points at Porky Cueve. David Dunn hit the all important goal in that game. In Division 1B, Carlo produced the shock of the weekend. They held Galway to a draw at Netwatch Cullen Park. It finished Carlo 20 points, Galway 20 points. Waterford comfortably beat Leash by 422 to 115 at Omore Park while Dublin made it back-to-back wins under their new manager Matty Kenny the boys in blue edged awfully by 219 to 12 points in Tullamore 
Well, Camogie making headlines once again this morning for the wrong reasons. Wexford did manage to field the team for their Littlewoods Camogie National League Division 1 game against Galway. They gave a walkover a week ago, having been unable to field the team against Cork. But they could only bring 13 players to their game with the Tribesmen. Galway hit eight goals in the first half before sportingly withdrawing two players to even up the numbers for the second half. Wexford have been without a manager since Martin Carey resigned prior to the beginning of the 2019 campaign. Galway won the game by 45 points on a scoreline of 9.23 to 1-2. That's extraordinary. That's that's absolutely incredible. Uh, like the fact that their funding got withdrawn or half their funding yeah, got withdrawn yeah. the previous week. So mm. they obviously had to go ahead and fulfil this fixture. It's, it seems to be an absolute disaster. Disasters, yeah. For for a county that you know would have a lot of pride and obviously and a lot of Recent history. Success. Yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, it's phenomenal how what what what's actually has happened down there. Considering when you look at obviously how the the the, the men's senior team is are going, you know, and obviously the the. the shall we say the resources that have been pumped in there yeah um, they're well funded but um, and to be honest with you so has the football <laughs> the men's football in Wexford over the last couple of years as well yeah it's just it's a very very strange one very strange one uh, obviously it's, something's going to come to light because that is a, that's a disgrace you know to go down to per, the 13 girls who went down like that's just mm. that's soul destroying it's really brutal and I mean there is the excuse that there's a contingent from the club St Martins who've been involved in club championship but even the county board chairperson did an interview with the 42.ie and she said we hope to have a manager in place by the Galway game they didn't in the end they had a caretaker man on the sideline and we will definitely fulfil the fixture with enough players regardless of the contingent that were away with the clubs we should have had enough players it's a bizarre situation and it's just it's a shame to see national outlets focusing on the negative but it's the kind of thing you just it's hard to, to get to a place where so much good work has been done to promote these games. When this happens, it just sets everything back. Yeah, yeah, it really true. does damage to the people who work hard to, uh, to put these games on and, and give them everything they have to, to have this. Um, it's really, really disappointing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think you're finishing up on Emiliano Sala. Yes, the plane carrying the Cardiff City footballer Emiliano Sala has been discovered in the English Channel. The light aircraft disappeared from radar on the 21st of January for travelling from France to Wales. Accident investigators are expected to send a submersible to inspect the wreckage later today. The official search and rescue operation was stood down and a man named David Murns led a privately funded search for the aircraft. He tweeted yesterday to say it was located off Guernsey after a couple of hours into the search. He said the wreckage was identified by sonar before a submersible with cameras was sent underwater and was able to confirm it was the plane as the registration number was visible and he said most of the fuselage was intact. All right, good stuff, Darren. So, uh, St. Enda's GA Club in Glengormley, County Antrim, have been described as Ireland's most terrorised club. They saw five of their members murdered by loyalist paramilitaries during the Troubles, uh, and the past year has been a fairy tale one for the club. And they face Kerry's Kilcommon in the All Ireland Intermediate Football Championship final at Croke Park this Saturday. What Dennis seems to say is uh, this club was there from the 50s, everything yeah. was fine. And then once the trouble started, as Dennis says, the soft targets were hitting both sides. And in Glen Gormley, that meant the GEA club. So this clubhouse has been burnt down yeah. 13 times. Mm. Yeah, 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, it was burnt down in, in 92 and, and twice in 93, yeah. July and then December. And actually he references a really good book, if anybody has never read it. Um, Des Fahey was an Ulster journalist. Um, I'm not sure where Des is these days, but he wrote a great book called How the GA Survived the Troubles. It's well worth reading. Um, right. And actually he, re- he references, uh, Dennis references that in this, bo- in this piece. Um, there's a phenomenal, I mean, some of the details in mm. it uh, they, they, a guy went up at 
one stage and um, he was having a drink, a uh, big guy, Jerry Tank McLaughlin, as is, is he's known as locally, and he lowered his giant frame onto a crate because the club they were using, they were rebuilding one of the times and they were using a bit of a shebeen. Yeah. And um, they, 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 they saw, a couple of them saw dangling wires and they had to call in the British Army. But actually, he was so fortunate. He was so heavy that he crushed the circuits. And the bomb didn't go off, but there was a bomb in the barrel that he sat down on. They found a bomb yeah. in the changing room 35 years ago on, the, yeah. on a match day. Yeah. Um, it really is extraordinary. I don't think we understand sometimes, Joe. Um, no. We don't understand what people in the north have gone through in terms of the troubles. Yeah, that's an incredible story. That's a uh, full discussion you can catch on youtube.com forward slash off the ball. It's from Clina Foley and Andy McGeady on yesterday's paper review uh, with Joe. We do want to turn our attention to some of the intercounty football in terms of what we witnessed at the weekend. I guess, Wilesy, the best place to start is uh, Croke Park on Saturday night, Dublin against Galway. It's remarkable how quickly Dublin have got up to speed and seem to be hitting the ground running already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's. I suppose, <laughs> Darren aside, you know, but the wheels coming off. Um, the Monaghan game was a, was a tricky assignment for them, um, so it was important that they got back up and got back up running, and they did it with with a plum. Um, Galway were impressive enough. The kind of first fifteen twenty minutes, you know, went toe to toe with them, got some great scores. Um, but once Dublin kind of turned around second half, they really got it going, and they did that usual stuff where they just shift gear, and all of a sudden, you know, you, they were playing in third, and now they're in fifth, and they just start to pull away from you. And in the blink of an eye, you're six or seven down, and the game is done. You know, and that's exactly what they did. What really impressed me was. Um, their angles of running is something now that they're really trying to, to, to get. So, like, I mean, Mannion got a score um, in the second half where he just clipped it over with his, with his left foot. But if you actually watch the score from before, like, I mean, there is, there is, there's about four to five different options for the ball carrier. Um, and it's all one touch. It's all, they're not, they're not even a touch. It's just all hand passing. So there's guys coming at different angles, preventing different options. And you can either take the one coming off, say, your left shoulder. You can take one coming off your right shoulder. If that doesn't work, you can step inside and take one coming down the middle of the field. So for a defense, you're covering all of these various options. And then invariably, after all the work the defence has done, there's someone who's kind of left free in an area and he gets the ball and it's a very, very simple score. Another thing I noticed last night or Saturday with them was, um, and, and it kind of tunes in with, 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 with Costello's performance, you know, he got six points, I think he got five from play, he got one from a mark, he kicked off his left and his right, but he kicked some absolutely massive scores, like some raker scores. Like one thing, you know, we w- would have noticed over the last number of years is, Dublin very rarely kicked long-range points. You know, most of it has worked into that area. Like, I think last year, they kicked very, very little from outside the D, the scoring zone. And that was something that people were trying to, you know, kind of, you know, emulate. But actually, on Saturday, they kicked some really, really big long-range points. So, you know, it's funny, I kind of watched a number of the games, and it's something that's kind of, it's a, it's a feature that I think is starting to happen. Why so, do you think so? Well, I think probably managers are deciding, well, look, you know, it's going to be difficult. Defences are probably going to crowd the D a lot more and push people out to the outsides of the, of the D and into the, shall we say, the, the less, less ratio providing kind of areas to kick points. Um, so they say we have to get better at it. We have to get better at long range sh- shots and we have to get the guys who have the ability to take those long range shots 
on the ball um, in those areas. And I'd say it's a matter of, well, can we do it? Can we get fellas up to the speed of it? Can we get fellas confident in doing it? And if you can do it in the winter conditions, you know, in the conditions of some of the pitches yesterday, you should be able to do it in the conditions of a nice dry day in, you know, June, July or August. Um, but it's definitely a feature, you know, and it's a, and it's, and it's a way to kind of, you know, counteract, obviously, Defence is being packed. But they've been, they've been packed for years, haven't they? And like yesterday, last year was particularly noticeable from Dublin's perspective that he just didn't, didn't even try efforts from outside the D, as you say. No, so what was the change this year, I wonder? I, look, I mean, I'd say, I'd say it's just a matter of, like, you always have to, you know, innovate. You always have to bring something different into it. Um, it could be a personnel type thing as well. Now, there's still an awful lot of hard running going on and guys just coming on the loop and just coming around off the shoulder and popping the ball over the bar. That's still there and it's, it's still evident in games. But, you know, even if you switch to the Mayo game, um, like a lot of people would have seen yesterday, some really, really long-range points kicked by Mayo as well. Um, and indeed, one or two by Tyrone. But, you know, long kicks that you would probably previously have said that a manager would be kind of saying, what are you taking that shot on for? You know, just inside the 50, you know, big, big boomers of scores um, where, you know, people said, well, you probably would have rather to, 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 to bring it in a bit. But I just think it is a feature. And I'd say it's just something that they're trying to say, well, if we need to go into this mode in a game in a championship game we know we actually have the, the people to do it and we know we've actually proven we can do it and we can do it again um, and it's it's just another tactic Yeah because like Niall Moyne was with us in the studio a couple of months ago saying that he wanted to see uh, a two point line made on the pitch to encouraging to encourage that skill of long kicking because yeah. as we've said there Dublin just haven't been doing it and they have been the thing that we've been holding up as the kind of the example of how to play Gaelic football at the moment so it is interesting that this has started to happen and maybe it is the fact that closer opportunities to goal just aren't turning into points. I wonder, it must be based on something because it is a trend. Yeah, I'd say there probably are, you know, I'm sure there's, there's lots of statistics out there to show it, um, bar Dublin's, you know, uh, ability to do it. Maybe other teams have found that they haven't, they haven't got that ability to do it. But, you know, I suppose it's, it's you know, if you want to go to the basketball parlance, it's a situation where you're just, you know, shooting for three-pointers a bit more. Um, you know, and if you have a guy, obviously, who can hit threes, a lot more efficiently than you know them going inside well then just give them the ball um, and it was like it is something that stood out for me you know it, it really was especially with Dublin uh, and Mayo on the games I saw you know that ability of that if we go in we'll go out you know if, if it starts to break down if we start to feel a bit of heat coming in we'll get the ball out to shoot around the outside who is the guy we want to get it and then it's a long range point or a long range effort um, and as I say you know a wet day cold, the ball doesn't travel as far so come the summer, these guys should be able to kick and, and know their range is 40, 45 metres or whatever it is. Now I have to say, some of the defending from Galway was pretty abject. Yeah. You know, Should they be was, worried? I'd be worried from their intensity levels, you know, there was, there was plenty of bodies around, similar to Tyrone, uh, but just a real lack of intensity, a real lack of putting pressure on the ball, a real lack of putting pressure on the kicker, you know, some of Costello's was, he just stepped inside the guy, just dropped his shoulder and just popped it over the bar, no one coming to double up, no one coming to help out, um, I'd say they were gassed, you know, because Dublin definitely looked on top of their game now but Dublin always kind of looked like that in Crow Park but Galway went into this defensive mode again which just doesn't work in Crow Park you know it just doesn't work you can't Dublin were so adept now at finding space and as I say angles of runs that you could have 15 guys in there controlling that D 
um, and they still find space and they flick the ball around so much and they move the ball from left to right so much that they find holes in your defence. So you have to have something to offer up front and to give your defenders a break mm. um, and they just didn't have that. Like I, I just find it interesting that Kevin Walters was saying after the game that they're not at the level they were at like fitness-wise or being ready to rock as they were for the league last year and Dublin just seems miles ahead of them fitness-wise, which doesn't make any sense because there's no reason why Galway shouldn't take the league seriously again this year because it is the very platform that gave them their most successful footballing season in 17 years last yeah, year. Yeah, big time. Like We spoke with this prior to the league, you know, and we were saying, can Galway improve on this? Or will it be kind of, as you were saying, some people were saying Galway were a little bit, you know, did they kind of overshoot last year? Yeah. You know, so are they really the, 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 the team? Like, if I was him, I'd be looking at Mayo now going, oh... This is a bit worrying for yeah. me. Yeah, what did you see from Mayo yesterday? Um, like, I mean, people will give Mayo a lot of plaudits this morning. Uh, I tell Tyrone were, were 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 very abject. Like they were they were they were terrible. Um, and probably not even from a physical point of view. I think you know, fitness wise and everything else, Tyrone tried to keep up with Mayo. Uh, I'd say they're I'd say Tyrone are a good few weeks behind. Um, similar thing happened with Tyrone last year. If you remember the first few rounds of the league where they weren't scoring, you know, they were trying some different things, trying to be a bit more expansive. They were trying to lessen the amount of players that they have in their defensive setup. Um, but even just mentally, they were caught. Like the second goal was absolutely terrible. It was from a free, and you know, defenders seemed to be all over. Place and, and young McDonough gets the ball and he just buries it, steps inside a man. So um, that's from a Tyrone point of view. Now, not taking anything away from Mayo, Mayo were absolutely top of the ground. Mm. Like they could have won by twenty odd points. They could have had four goals. You know, and it's funny. I saw I saw a quote from from. Uh, Horan, he says, without boring you too much, we have trained very well. We've had 20 or so sessions, which is probably more like 40. Um, and the guys have definitely added a bit of madness and enthusiasm to it. Now, that's a really interesting line, yeah. madness and enthusiasm. So that means, he like, the great thing that Horan will bring is, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, is, is, is this personal touch that he brings with players. Um, he's a definite arm around the shoulder man. He's he's a detail man, like he he like he told me previously, like that he would spend a lot of time on the on the sixteen to thirty on the panel, more so than the one to fifteen. So he gets these fellas, you know, really buying into the whole idea of the team, um, which obviously only increases competition for places, and you know, obviously raises the levels. And you can actually see that, like Higgins, Aidan O'Shea, even Andy Moran. Uh, Vaughan even yesterday we're, we're, we're really really good yesterday you know we're, we're, we're mad for action like we're attacking when you didn't even think they were going to attack like Higgins was coming off the shoulder they were attacking in trees and fours yesterday and they were just running Tyrone into the ground their option taken was very very good um, there was no stars there was no will I have to do it it was very much so that we're all going to share around the, the, the workload and we're going to share around the scores um, and there was one instance where actually Andy Moran you know, he, 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 probably a situation where actually he got a hand pass, it was a bit over his head and he ends up kicking it wide when they were, when they were on for a goal. Um, but there was very, very little selfishness going on and there was very little, well, he's the main man now. It was a real spread of stuff. Um, and I just thought they were very powerful, very powerful running, running from the half back line. They mixed it well. Um, now as again, you'd have to take a pinch of salt because Tyrone just weren't at it. Yeah. Um, but you know, for me, if I was Kevin Walsh, and I'm looking across at my near neighbours, and you're kind of saying to yourself, right, they're back, 
and they're back in a big way. Yeah, like as I, as I was saying earlier on, I just think it's so vital that the older heads that you mentioned there are on form, like Moran and Higgins, because ultimately, no matter how good any of these young fellows play this year, it'll still be their first season. It'll still be a breakthrough season for whoever that person may be. And maybe there won't be any of them that break through. So you're yeah. still going to have to rely on the lads if they are going to go all the way and challenge once again for an All-Ireland title. Like, it's interesting as well. You don't want to call him an old lad, but one of the more experienced fellows in the panel in Aidan O'Shea, like there was still question marks. There always will be question marks about Aidan O'Shea at 11. You were impressed with him, though, at centre-forward yesterday. Yeah, I was. I thought, I thought he, 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 he changed it up. Like, if I was setting up for O'Shea, you're saying, OK, you know, he's going to get the ball in and around midfield. He's going to turn. He's going to try to run at you. So what we need to do is we need to... Physically, he'll just blow you out of the way. So what we need to do is we need to ch- close the channel in on him. So we need to kind of nearly run with him and put him into an area where he doesn't want to be. In other words, that we're not giving him handy freeze. We're not dragging out of him. We're not allowing him to lay off the ball easy. We're just kind of nearly frustrating him and, and causing him to get kind of a bit muddled. Um... Yesterday he was really smart in how he distributed the ball. Like I mean, he got his head up an awful lot. Very, his first option wasn't just to bury his head and go. You know, he got the head up first time. He sprayed balls. He just did little hand passes. He was nearly a decoy for an awful lot of stuff. So physically taking two or three guys and then just slipping the ball to runners, which was the way that he should be played mm. because he is so physical that most teams would try to double up on him there. Um, you know, you'll say to a midfielder, listen, keep an eye on him and try and get back in to help the six try and double up on him and if, but if he's able to take that and, and slip it off to a, 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 a good mobile middle fielder which they have in O'Connor yeah. well then that causes issues for you and that half back line almost like a number 9 in soccer dropping deep to be the, the hold up man like is, is that the sort of role that we're talking here for Aidan O'Shea or yeah like I mean I, you know I, th- I think he, I, no, like he, he can still deliver a pass okay. you know, and he can deliver a really good pass um, but what has happened to him a lot is, due to his size and I think his physicality and the amount of punishment he takes when he runs with the ball, he was going in and out of games an awful lot. You know, people say, oh, sure, he goes missing for five or ten minutes. But that was the nature of, of him as a player. I think if he's able to mix it up much more with actually nearly not standing in the pocket, but actually being, as I say, a foil for fellas, slipping hand passes to guys when he feels the, the tackle's coming in, or actually delivering passes, it'll actually make his running then, uh, when he sees the opportunity, a lot more effective. A uh, quick word of the other two games. So, uh, Ross Common beat Monaghan 112 to 13 points, which was a pretty big shock uh, in terms of Division 1. And then Kerry beat Cavan 16 points to 13. <coughs> your boy Sean O'Shea, who you had in your top 10 footballers of uh, the year last summer, who I didn't have in the top 10 footballers yes. of the year yes. uh, last summer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not uh, to remind you of it. You no. know, not, not to remind you of the <laughs> fact that you, you know, oh, okay, 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 I'll be honest. You didn't really, uh, uh, you said that he's just not there yet. Not there yet. Okay, so uh, is he there now? I think he's there right now. 12 points yesterday. Unbelievable in the first two games. The thing I find often with free takers is they can sometimes be passengers in a team that they're so good from dead balls that they almost have to start. Um, Sean O'Shea is not that passenger because from open play he's been outstanding for Kerry for the last uh, two games and they finally have somebody in the post Brian Sheehan era that can actually put a ball over the black spot consistently. There is no worry about that ball no, no. Uh, when it's in the air. Once it leaves the boot, you know it's going over. Yeah, and like I mean, horrible conditions. Yeah. You know, and he was kicking for fun. You yeah. know, kicking 45s. His two points, I think, he got from play, one off his left, one off his right. Um, he physically now 
looks like a, like a big man. You know, he's, he's he started to fill out his legs. You can start to see him. You know, he's done obviously a lot of work, as have a number of them, by yes, the way. Yes, I think the Donny Buckley <clears throat> effect is having a noticeable impact on the Kerry team already in terms of their toughness, their tackling, and the physicality, and a lot of them. Yeah, because actually, I've, I really, I've, no, I've noticed they're 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 kind of doing the old Armagh trick of of the team of the two thousands, whereby you know it's a tackle very much on the ball, um, mm. but it's to strip the ball of you. You know, so they're going in very very aggressively on the ball to strip um, and then there's then there's like I mean obviously players to come in and pick up the pick up the pieces that's going to be a great game next weekend against yeah. Dublin because you know Gavin definitely won't want Kerry getting any kind of now we say this a lot but he definitely won't want them getting any kind of a real fill up in confidence whereas Keane will absolutely Love if he can get that. Like that's that will be one of his big desires. He obviously doesn't want to get a tanking, because but he can still fall back. <clears throat> he can still fall back on a little bit of well, you know, we're blooding the players and it was. A, so Gavin is in a quite a not a dangerous position, but he has a lot more to lose than I think Keane has. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think it's a great game for them. Uh, it's nearly a la to the England-Ireland thing where I think if they bring a bit of madness and a bit of bullying to it and physically really see because that, that'll be the marker can they really stand up to them physically can they can they get into the trenches with Dublin um, let their skill and stuff come out but actually bring them down there and say right this is our patch um, and we're not going to make it easy Absolutely and I think you're bang on there about the physicality I think it's a huge game next Saturday uh, David Moran is back from his, holiday, from his honeymoon yesterday I'm telling you if, uh, I've never seen a man come back from a honeymoon in such good shape like he clearly must have been at the gym every morning I don't know, I don't know yeah. how the wife might have felt about that because he came back <laughs> flying off the bench yesterday Tommy Walsh came off the bench yesterday was extremely encouraging in his performance and this isn't my take at all before we uh, before we went on air uh, last week down in Killarney Mike Work was telling me about his other club mates so there are two Rahleys lads and then a yeah. third Rahley Kearns Rahleys lad uh, Gavin O'Brien uh, six foot three four five potentially right. uh, wing forward massive mobility kind of like Jacob Stockdale uh, the way he can move he came on with a brief glimpse yesterday and was brilliant so expect Kerry to go big in the middle of the park go big close to goal and basically tackle Dublin with everything that they've got physically like, kind of like Jack Barry did to Brian Fenton a couple of years ago except they're doing it to multiple players yes. all over the pitch yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if things get a little bit heated in Chile on Saturday night but th- those three currents are Ali's lads very very encouraging signs from, from a Kerry perspective in terms of being bigger and not getting bullied this year so yeah. I don't think that's going to happen uh, yeah. b- before we wrap up we just want to uh, touch on Division 2 uh, so a couple of results like obviously that terrible pitch witnessed uh, Kildare uh, 110 Cork 10 points yesterday yeah. uh, Udarmagh 113 Clare 210, uh, Tip 25 for Mana 25, and then your own county, Meath, went down uh, to Donegal on a 113 to 14 point scoreline. Uh, you've got a, a hotline to that game yesterday. What, what went on there? Yeah, just Meath were in the driving seat for a long, long, long period of it. Missed a couple of probably easy enough chances uh, first half and early second half. Um, probably should have been out of sight. Um, played really well, you know, against the Donegal side that was probably inexperienced, you know, missing a lot of players, so you would have expected me. It was a great opportunity for me to get two points off a team that would be, you know, everyone's tip to obviously get promotion. Um, very harrowing week, obviously, for Donegal with everything that went on. Um, so, yes, there was a lot of emotion going on, but, you know, me took it, me were running well. James McEntee had a fine game, young Campion had a fine game, um, but just, Defensive blunder at a vital time. Um, what happened? Know, 
just a big high ball in. Owen Ball Gallagher puts the ball into McFadden, who had kind of went into full forward. He was well tracked by Menton. The ball bounces. The goalkeeper comes out, and it just kind of as he's about to pick it up, one of the Donegal lads just gets a flick on it between right. his legs. Like just, just, just you know. To be fair to Colgan, he's a good goalkeeper, and it was just, it was just one of those things. But it seemed to kind of really deflate Mead. Straight away to get Donegal, get another score. All of a sudden, you go from four up. You're now level, uh, and they get one or two more scores. Now, Mead had chances, but I think it was just the shock of it. From being in a very, very commanding position where you're, you know, strolling, uh, to all of a sudden you're like, oh. Now, it's a lesson for them, um, and it's a big lesson for them. And, you know, I think Andy McEntee and the boys can obviously use it to, to, to really hone in on that it cannot happen again. This type of stuff cannot happen again. And game management has to be a little bit better um, because they've Armagh next week and Armagh, by all intents and purposes, should have won that game. I think they felt that they were a bit robbed against Clare. Supposedly there was a goal in the last few minutes that didn't cross the line. Uh, it seemed to be a bit of a touchy affair. So that's going to be a big game uh, next week. Uh, and, and things are going to be tight in that division. Things are going to be very tight in that division. You know, you're going a goal to from a sideline kick from David Tuberty yesterday yeah. to, to draw the game for Clare. Yeah. It's incredible. Just a, a quick one on Donegal, because they're likely to go under the radar over the next couple of weeks. We probably won't chat to them, uh, chat about them too mm. much. Like I've, I've got big hopes for this Donegal team at the moment, ma- mainly because of the promise they showed in the league last year, and then after Paddy McBearty got injured, their whole season just went down the toilet, basically. And then had a, who, would, who knows what might have happened yeah. in the Super 8s had he been fit, basically. And I don't want to say it was a terrible season because they were still in the Super 8s. Like, what's your sense? Are, are they still trending in the right direction, or is Division 2 something that's just going to stall their progress? <laughs> I, I, you know, I would have been very, very positive on them last year as well. I thought they were, I thought they were really coming. You know, like I mean, I thought the likes of Owen Bond Gallagher was a massive addition to them. Um, I think they'd be okay. I think, I think it's going to be a tricky situation for 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 Bonner because of obviously the Guidor players and stuff like that. It is hard. It's it's very, very. Like I mean, I, you know, you heard him saying, "Listen, it has to be finished." In, in the calendar season and he's completely right because there is a hangover from it you know and you don't get your players back and then you try to integrate them in you're integrating them in in a very short space of time so it is difficult for them the injuries does not help how Murphy comes back and how McBrearty potentially comes back is obviously going to be two big factors but at the same time you know from what I saw from Tyrone yesterday uh, you're kind of saying, right, okay, well, they will get it right, but yeah. at the moment they're trending downwards. Um, you know, Cavan, Cavan are probably samey, samey as last year. You know, okay, first half against Kerry, but then Kerry kicked on second half. So, you know, you've got Armagh, who are probably trending upwards a bit, um, and then you're into Derry and down, and okay, you know, down are going okay, but it's it's it's... I wouldn't be worried too much for them. That was a good win for them yesterday, to be honest. Like I mean, it was fortuitous, but it was still it was still a good win, uh, and I think it was it was it was a win that they they needed to uh, uh, you know gain promotion if they if they are going to get it. Yeah, definitely. Like. They're missing Michael Murphy and Paddy McBearty. And Division 2 is no cakewalk because no. everybody is focused on the league. They're so gung-ho to get into Division 1 as well. So yeah, yeah. it's a pretty good start uh, to their league campaign. Uh, right, we're going to turn tack to soccer because Manchester City 3, Arsenal 1 was live and off the ball yesterday afternoon. Mark Lawrenson was on commentary duties with Nathan Murphy. And afterwards, he gave us his take on Manchester City's form. Anyone who didn't see this game and just sees the result will probably think Manchester City are back dominant performance mm. at home against a good team but as you said until they got that second goal which came at a very good time just before half time there was a lot of nerves around this place there was a lot of tension among the City players as well like 
it's not just Liverpool who are feeling a few nerves out here at the moment. Oh no, it's it, it's it's obviously um, it's a difficult thing because you start well. I mean, you know, as soon as, it, as soon as they come out, the last words you probably heard from the manager, excuse me, are you know, start well, start well, and they start well, then they score, and then the crowd are, oh, we're going to win three, four, five, which they're used to here, and then Arsenal got you know a relatively quick equaliser, and all of a sudden. The crowd noise goes down and you kind of, a couple of balls go astray, a couple of passes go astray and you kind of think, oh, here we go. And to be honest with you, it didn't really look like scoring the rest of the first half. Fortunately, they did. It's, it's, it's one of those mental things, but I mean, the thing is that, you know, all, all the time that obviously they've come back today and they've won after the defeat by Newcastle and, you know, you said about David Silva not playing particularly well, De Bruyne are obviously still looking for his touch a little bit, but they're all playing and they're getting miles in their legs. And, you know, it just it looked to me like a team, if they get Mendy back as well, who really will seriously push on. And I could, I would probably say they will go, they will go unbeaten from now to the rest of the season in the league. Really? Yeah. I don't, I don't think any team's going to beat them. I just, I just think they've had this kind of big wobble over the last, I don't know, month, six weeks, two months. But I, I really seriously see them kicking on now. That is uh, quite a take from Mark Lawrence in there. Like... I would have certainly agreed with him if he said that a week ago, if this had happened before the Newcastle game. Mm. But I think that Newcastle game really showed up a mental fragility in this Manchester City team that is that can be exposed again and again and again before the end of the season. Yeah, but... You know, OK, but yes, it did. But at the same time, Newcastle are providing sterner tests in the last number of weeks than probably people are giving them really credit for. You know, um, <coughs> and I don't know. I just think City... It is. It is something that you know he's he's getting. Once once I need to go over that blip, which I, I would think some people, obviously City fans, would think that it was a blip. I don't think. Okay, mental mentally wise or whatever wise, it was a blip. Maybe tactic wise, but now they're in a situation. That that was a big win for them yesterday. Mm. Like, that was a big win. Like I mean, and it kind of it gets them now that he's able to use the pressure and try to apply the pressure on Klopp, which he's obviously trying to do. He's ramped it up obviously since the win, um, and it gets them in that position where they're just chasing. It's much better to be chasing than out in front, you know, because you know what you're, you're hunting down, you know, and you can just constantly try to chip away at it. Whereas, obviously, when you're up there and you're top of the thing, you just have to be, you know, you can't provide any slip-ups. And there's no question that if Liverpool slip up tonight, even if they draw or whatever, or even if they look a little bit shaky in a victory, that's going to give Manchester City hope. Oh, massive, massive, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, enormous hope, yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's going to go down to the wire. It's going to be great. Yeah. Like, in all... Aspects of the Premier League, the top four race is going to be good. The relegation battle, like with, with Cardiff's win at the weekend, kind of stirs that back up nicely yeah, as well. Because yeah, I was yeah. starting to think that the bottom three might get cut, a, cut adrift. Like, usually, once uh, you're into the National Leagues and the Super Bowl, the Premier League is like, well, that's done. We've, yeah, we've, got, we've yeah, got a title yeah, contender yeah. just playing yeah. out the rest of the season until mid March when it's finished. But really, it's, it's as good a Premier League conclusion it as is. you could hope for. Yeah, 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 it is. As you say, it's at both ends, you know, which is great, you know, and it's going to be, usually, as you say, it's just a kind of, okay, well, who's going to go down now? And that's where the focus comes. Sky Sports get focused in on the relegation <laughs> battle because the rest is done. But no, it is. It's going to go all the way. They will be in full hype overdrive <laughs> over the next number of weeks. <laughs> they won't know what to do with themselves. No. Uh, so as we said, it's Liverpool. They're up against uh, West Ham tonight. And Mark Lawrence is speaking about them as well and whether or not they can extend their lead at the top of the table. All eyes now switch then to the London Stadium tomorrow night. Mm. West Ham against Liverpool. Liverpool looking to reopen the gap back to five points. Your sense of where they are then? Is, is, is it a nervous <coughs> Liverpool that you saw against Leicester in midweek? Do you think that is going to be any sort of a factor in this? No, because... 
you know, if you said at the start of the week that um, obviously City play, Liverpool play, and Liverpool would gain an extra point, no, nobody would be interested insofar as saying that they were nervous. They just didn't play particularly well, but, but that happens. They gained a point. I actually feel, you know, maybe away from home it's easier because the pressure's not on you as much. And the way that Liverpool are set up, very much on the counter-attack, it's probably easier to play away from home. I mean, they've picked West Ham off on the last couple of occasions at the London Stadium and picked them off quite easily. And I just like the way that the manager is with them, which is, you know, he puts no pressure on them whatsoever. They go out and they play. I mean, they've been brilliant for the majority of the season. If you'd said the first weekend in August of the Premier League that they will be, what, are they four points clear at the... Well, two points Two now. points clear, chance but if they win five. tomorrow, a chance to go five, they would have snapped your hand off. I just think is it, it's more the supporters and the press that are saying, oh, you never know, they didn't play well against Leicester, etc., etc., didn't play well against Palace but they got four points and it's the points that make the difference but as you say it is the supporters and there seems to be a split among former Liverpool players and you know more than anybody what's like mm. to play at Anfield and the pressure and you leave a pass short and everybody's at you but that's do you feel is it, do you feel for this group it is suffocating no no because um, the, 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 the three players that got up front can just like score your goal out of absolutely nothing and I think you know playing on that team must be great at the moment especially playing in the back and playing in midfield because basically if you do your job keep a clean sheet and supply the front three with the ammunition they'll probably probably beat most of the teams in the league well they have done Mark great stuff as always thanks for joining us thank you it is easier said than done you know this very simple thing that requires a lot of mental uh, strength really because at the start of the season it's pure concentration you do the right thing after the right thing after the right thing and then worry about what that will actually affect later on in the year whereas now the very effect is right there in front of you yeah. because you can sense it in Anfield I'd imagine at the moment that there is something tangible at stake uh, yeah and, and as you say it's, it's starting to become reality <laughs> this I think is where Klopp's you know his ability to really hone in on any of that kind of psychological aspect uh, comes into play He's very, very good, as Lawrenson says there, of just taking the pressure away from players. He's very good, certainly in all his you know, media work and everything else, about you know, just saying, well, listen, I just get the players to go out and express themselves and play with a kind of a, you know, nearly a, an abandonment you know, and just go and be as skillful as they can be, attack and da-da-da. But that's a great point that he says that if you're a defender in that team, you know, just do my job, do my job and get the ball up there because they can create something out of nothing um, and when you have that ability when you know well listen there's goals in the team that even if you concede when you're saying well listen we just need to make sure that we get the ball up to them and bar you know just a, a bad run of luck or a keeper who's just playing unbelievably amazing mm. they should get goals um, so Klopp I think just has to probably keep you know kind of just repeating that to them you know in a sense of listen we will get chances we will get chances you have to just keep it tight and then you know be as expansive as you can be when you're going forward um, and never mind the rest let the rest look after themselves you know we do our job we do our job we pick up our points you know it doesn't matter about the, the, how many points we're ahead or whatever it is and I think you know it's, it's their best opportunity in obviously donkey's years um, well Liverpool fans won't appreciate that but in a long time for them to go and he hasn't faltered yet you know and they haven't faltered yet you know they, they've looked strong they've looked, looked positive they've looked confident um, and you know as I say with that kind of forward line that he has 
they have the ability to score, which is the big thing. It's not, you know, it's not set on a bedrock of defence, although the defence has been excellent, mm. but it is all set as well of, well, well, we'll outscore you too. Yeah, for sure. So if they win tonight, they move five points clear uh, of Manchester City, and that would be seven points clear of your beloved Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah. Are they still in the title race? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure does yeah, that make sure. you more of a Spurs fan. Or probably more of a Spurs fan. It's a very Spurs attitude. Yes, have. absolutely. Just the pragmatism of it, you know, <laughs> just the fact. Uh, look, I'm, you know, they've played well. They've played really well. And like, I mean, I think a lot of people would have said that when Kane got injured, that was it. They'll probably, you know, slide down the table mm. um, because of the, the over-reliance on them. Some players have stepped up, be it Son. Son, you know, has really stepped up. I mean, him, not, him not making the Asian Cup final was a, was a great old boot. Absolutely, it was. Um, but again, you know, you talk about spend and all that stuff. You know, Pochettino. A lot of talk about Pochettino and, and his ambition and all that thing. Like, it, there's no. There's okay. United are a massive club. If they if they if they went and went from and everything else or whoever else. But the fact is that you know Spurs are a very well run club from a financial point of view. You know, uh, it's very tight <laughs> as you would expect. <laughs> Not casting any aspirations on the owners, but it is it is a budget. Uh, the the checks and balances are made, mm-hmm. um, but they need to start bringing in because they can. They could really really push. Like they have an unbelievable manager. Uh, they've got some great, great players. They play a l- nice brand of football, but there is just that something missing, um, and that something missing is the difference between, you know, having really challenging and not. Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, we will have plenty of reaction to that Liverpool result tonight, whatever <coughs> it is, up against West Ham uh, in the Premier League. Uh, Anthony, thank you very much for your company this morning. We'll chat to you again soon. Uh, off the ball returns tonight from seven o'clock with Monday Night Rugby and the Football Show, and plenty more besides. We're back tomorrow morning from seven forty-five a.m. on OTB AM. Plenty more reaction and fallout from the Six Nations defeat at the weekend. I'd imagine. We'll chat to you then. Bye bye for now. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. Listener.